Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 29th, 2012, and my guest is Richard Burkhauser of Cornell University. Rich, welcome to EconTalk. Uh, thanks. Good to be here. Our topic for today is the economic status of the middle class. We hear a lot of talk about the middle class is disappearing. My colleague, Tyler Cowan, talks about the great stagnation. There's a view that the rich are getting richer. Everyone else is either treading water or falling behind, so inequality is growing. And of course, there are statistics to back these claims up. The median wage rate has grown very little, if at all, since the 1970s, and there does appear to be growing inequality. But it turns out a lot of these data are subject to interpretation, and decisions have to be made by researchers on what they mean. And what we're going to talk about today is a paper that you've done with Jeff Larimore and Kasali Simon from the March uh, issue of the National Tax Journal, which is called – your article is called A Second Opinion on the Economic Health of the American Middle Class. And what you show is depending on how you define income in the unit of analysis, you can get a very different take on what is happening. So start off by telling us uh, what you did and, and how you came to the project. Uh, sure. Well, uh, I've been uh, looking at issues of income and poverty for the last uh, – 30 years, really, and uh, uh, my efforts uh, in this regard actually go back to uh, uh, at least 10 years ago when uh, people were looking at what was happening in the 1980s, and uh, that's when uh, uh, this first this issue first began of the disappearing middle class, that is, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and, and uh, the middle disappearing. And... Uh, just using conventional uh, methods in those uh, days, uh, using what the uh, Census Bureau uses to measure income, uh, we, uh, that is uh, uh, income from the current population survey, pre-tax, uh, post-transfer income, that is uh, the income that people report when the Census Bureau uh, guy knocks on your door and you say, you know, how much are, how much, how much are your earnings, uh, what did you get in interest and dividends, those sorts of things. When you simply did that and uh, looked uh, and and looked at the uh, distribution of uh, uh, households uh, household income of individuals uh, and arrayed them from no income to um, uh, the person with the highest income, you'd get a distribution. And we did something just very simple. We looked at this distribution, you know, and it's uh, it's kind of a, a a bell curve, that is, uh, there's two tails and, and a bunch of people in the middle, uh, a little hump there. And we did it for 1979, which was uh, the uh, start of the 1980s business cycle. And we did it for uh, 1990, which was the end of the business cycle. And we just uh, put those two distributions on top of each, each other. And we found this really kind of interesting thing. Uh, it was absolutely true that uh, when you put the uh, 1989 uh, distribution on top of the 1979 distribution, the middle uh, uh, shrank. It disappeared. But where did all those people go? Well, they disproportionately became richer. So we actually could see 
that you ended up with a, a very small part of the tail that got poorer, about uh, 10%, and uh, of, of the, of the uh, mass that you pushed down from the middle uh, moved to the left and became a little poorer, but 90% became richer. So this whole business uh, that uh, was uh, talked about, about uh, the, the, the middle disappearing, if you think about it simply as the middle mass where most of the people are, it is true that that, got, that that middle disappeared, but most of it disappeared by people getting richer. So I've, I've always been suspect of people who make these claims just using the, the, uh, the simple uh, statistics that, that the government provides us. Now, so, let, me just, let me just clarify that. So <clears> – <throat> Uh, obviously, if somebody uh, asks you what you earn or what your income is, what your salary is, most people have in mind, as you said before, their pre-tax income. They don't think about what their after-tax income is. If they were asked, they might be able to get at close to that. Most of us have some idea of what we pay in taxes. Or I would argue that it's probably pretty imprecise except around the month of April. But when when we look at government data on income, we're typically looking at – pre-tax income to start with and what you're what you're talking about this change over that decade of 79 to 89 you're talking about when you include non non earnings right you're adding in interest income you're adding in government transfers is that what you're talking about or are you just still just looking at pre-tax income uh no i'm absolutely talking about that that's right what i'm uh, this all gets very interesting uh, when uh, we decide, well, what is it that we're going to count? So yeah. historically, uh, <clears throat> well, what I should say is that empirical economists are really limited in what they can say by the data that they get. So a major scientific innovation beginning in the 1960s was that uh, in 1967, for the first time, the Census Bureau uh, became willing to go out and poll people in their homes, uh, and we started to have an annual current population survey. In that survey, which was uh, which is now the most important uh, data set used to measure the uh, income and employment of uh, of Americans. Uh, the uh, surveyor goes into the door. They ask the principal uh, person in the household to describe all of the sources of income of that person and all the other people who live in that household. And that is uh, both market income, that is uh, returns to land, labor, and capital, and uh, any transfers from the government. So that's the technical term for that is pre-tax, post-transfer, in-cash income. So it does not include – it does not include – um, in-kind benefits. It would not include food stamps. It would not include my vacation. It would not include my health insurance. That's right. Okay. Uh, exactly. And also uh, any subsidies you get for housing uh, or uh, many other uh, uh, in-kind uh, Non-cash. Non-cash. That's right. Exactly. <clears throat> okay. So starting in 67, the CPS, the Current Population Survey – gets that information. And so if I'm trying to figure out what's happening, I just want to make one other key point here, which is that in these debates, people often focus on the median, which has a very good thing about it, which is it's not sensitive to outliers. So if the overall population is getting a lot if, – if national income is growing, but it's growing because a few people at the very right-hand tail are gathering all the goodies, which is what some people think, 
then the average could go up, but the average person wouldn't be getting any of it. So to avoid that problem of the right-hand tail and distorting the what's happened to the typical American, people use the median. Now, the median has its own problems, which, which we'll come back to later, but its best advantage is it avoids this problem of, of outliers to the right or to the left, somewhat to the left, because zeros are obviously a little bit weird, but put, the, put that aside. The, so the advantage of median is it doesn't – it isn't distorted by, by outliers, but the, one of the problems is, is what you count still is difficult to, to, to decide or sometimes you might have an axe to grind. So if, you're, if you want to make the growth in median income look small – you leave out in-kind benefits and and cash benefits outside of income because they've got more importance since 1979. That's right. And it's it's not only true that they become more important because uh, they become an increasing component of the uh, transfer system of government to low-income people, but uh, even uh, the compensation of workers has increasingly uh, been in non-wage compensation. And the most important one is uh, the employer-provided health insurance. Sure. So approximately 75% of all the workers in the United States either have uh, their own employer providing them with uh, uh, compensa- compensation in uh, health insurance or they're the spouse of someone who's working and uh, they're on their plan. So this is a major uh, uh, part of uh, of the compensation program, and it's not included in measures of wage earnings or in income. Let me ask one more clarifying question uh, because you raised it when you're talking about how the survey is administered. So I'm sitting at home. uh, The doorbell rings. It's the Census Bureau, and this is an annual survey. This is not the every 10-year, correct? That's right. It's uh, done each March, uh, and uh, while the CPS actually has people uh, in it, for uh, a period of 16 months, it's only in March they ask the detailed questions right. about income, and the other months they ask uh, questions about employment. So the guy rings, knocks on my door, and the unit of analysis, which we're going to come back to later, in this case with the, with the CPS, the unit of analysis is the household. So if, right. if my father lives with me and he receives Social Security, that would be included in – post-transfer household income, not obviously pre-transfer. It's not earnings. It would not be – if we're just looking at the income of the household and my father doesn't work. But if he lives in my house and he gets and he gets uh, Social Security, that would be included in the survey if, if I remember to tell him, if I remember to tell the guy, right? That's correct. What else would be in that household income that might be a little bit uh, offbeat or a little bit unusual? Because it, I think it's important for people to remember this is not – it's not every – not a bunch of individuals who get surveyed. It's the household as a group. Well, that's right. And uh, one of the major issues is uh, in the there, – there are three uh, kinds of um, sharing units, we call them, that you can think about. The, the, idea, the idea here is that if you're, if you're doing a study of wage rates or wage earnings, the natural unit to look at that is the individual – and so we don't worry about where the individual, uh, what the individual does with its with its uh, earnings. But once you recognize that um, people uh, share things, uh, and we do it in a natural way, when you're trying to look at uh, uh, people's economic well-being, you actually want to think about uh, what their uh, power is to consume. And what you recognize is, for instance, if you simply looked at the 
the personal income of people who live in households, you'd get very strange results. You'd get that uh, take a, 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 a dad who uh, works full-time in the marketplace and a mom who works full-time at home raising their children, you'd end up, uh, if you use the individual as the unit of analysis, showing that the, uh, the, the husband was making a lot of money and was in perfectly good shape. The wife uh, would be dirt wife, poor, yeah. Uh, yeah, the wife would have no income uh, of her own and therefore would be counted as, having, as being uh, poor, and the children, of course, would be poor. But that's, of course, a, an odd way to think about things, that, in fact, we uh, live in sharing units and we share income, so you want to be sure to get the sharing unit correct. So there are three uh, ways of thinking about that. One is um, uh, the household. All the people in the household, you assume, uh, uh, share their incomes together. Uh, but what we know is there could be more than uh, one family in a household. And a family is defined as uh, anybody who is your blood relative or who you're married to. And it's possible that that's the sharing unit. And then the third sharing unit is uh, the tax unit. And uh, the tax unit is... Um, who you put on your uh, income tax form when you uh, uh, pay your money to the government. So that, now, would, that would include my daughter who is at, in college who makes some money working part-time. That money by itself would make her look desperately poor. But of course she's not poor because she's still in my tax unit and really still in my household even though she does not live here. That's right. The tax unit is uh, – in, in our work, in our most recent work, we really uh, think carefully about which is a more appropriate unit for the sharing unit. Should it be the tax unit or should it be the household? And I think the, uh, there are two really nice uh, examples of a difference between those two. So the first is uh, uh, two people who uh, share everything except a marriage certificate. And increasingly in the United States, uh, uh, in the generation of, the of people in their 20s and 30s and, and more, uh, people are uh, testing out uh, relationships before they, uh, before they officially marry. Right. And so you can get two people who are not blood relatives and who are not married who, in fact, share everything. Uh, but if you use uh, the tax unit as the unit of analysis, you're assuming that they don't share anything and they're individual units. If you use the household, uh, you recognize that they're sharing. That's one example. The other is the one that you mentioned, that if your father lives with you uh, and is uh, getting Social Security benefits, uh, he's probably paying, he's a tax unit, a separate tax unit from you and your family. He's not and, my dependent. Uh, that's right. He's not your dependent. Uh, but he is living in, in your household, and he's probably sharing things with you. And likewise, your child, would, uh, your adult child, who uh, uh, started out, uh, got, his, got his college degree, uh, but is a, a so-called boomerang kid and is living in your basement, uh, he maybe works a, a little bit, but not a whole lot, uh, he would be considered a, a separate tax unit also. And, of course, one of the issues here, which is you have to deal with, is that you know, the expression is two can live as cheaply as one. It's not quite true, but there were a lot of economies of scale, obviously, within the household, which is why you're talking about the sharing unit. You're sharing the food. You're sharing the responsibilities of uptake, upkeep in the house, perhaps. A lot of these things means that that this group, that looking at people as per capita within this unit isn't quite accurate. 
That's right. So the next kind of building block is once you've chosen a sharing unit, then you have to recognize that if you're going to compare sharing units uh, uh, and figuring out how much, uh, how much income they have and which is a better sharing unit, you have to recognize that a sharing unit uh, that's a, a total of one person uh, and has $50,000 is going to be a lot better off than a sharing unit that has uh, four people uh, and the same $50,000. So what you really want to do is not look at sharing units uh, uh, or tax units, but look at uh, the income of a household, uh, uh, the income available to people who live in a household or in a tax unit. And that says that you take uh, the total income, whatever it is that you've measured in the sharing unit, and you divide by the number of people in that, uh, in that uh, household or tax unit. But as you said, uh, the old saying is two uh, uh, can live as cheaply as one. That's not quite true, or else uh, 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 you would uh, just take that uh, uh, number and, and uh, multiply or a uh, just divide and, by uh, you just divide by the number of people in the household. But that's not quite right because because uh, two people be yep. yeah two people earning you said one person earning fifty thousand that two people earning fifty and living together have a little more command over goods than that person, even though the average in the house is 50, the two living together are going to have a little advantage in terms of their command over goods and services than the one person living on his own with 50 because of the economies of scale. Uh, that's right. You, you use the same amount of heat, whether there's one person in the room or four, uh, you can buy the uh, economy size uh, containers of milk and, uh, and uh, the large portions of meat, which is a little bit cheaper than buying the individual packs. So there are and lots a two of bedroom uh, lots house. Of two bedroom house isn't usually twice as expensive. Two, a one bedroom house where the two people live, sleep in the same bedroom is is going to be the same price for the two. So there's all that's an even more dramatic example. Exactly right. So for that for that reason, the the formula that you, people usually use is uh, take the income, divide it by the number of people, and then do it to a power. And if the power is zero, any number to the power of zero is uh, one, and that means that there's perfect economies of scale. That would mean that, uh, you know, you would love me so much that uh, if I eat an apple, you feel satisfied. That's probably <laughs> that's probably uh, a bit much. So we don't want to uh, uh, say that uh, a one-person household uh, needs uh, just as much or no more than a 10-person household. Uh, so uh, if, if, the, uh, if you raise it to the power uh, one, then, of course, that's per capita, and you say there's no uh, returns to scale. So what uh, uh, people do in the international literature, and I think this is uh, a reasonable number, is they move it to the power of 0.5. And it turns out if you move it to the power of 0.5, you get a very nice relationship. That is, a, uh, a family of four needs uh, exactly twice as much as a family of one uh, to, to be at the same level of economic well-being. So, let me, again, let's uh – to get away, the power of 0.5 is just the square root, right? So that's right. Just so, take the square root. So what, what you're saying is that if I've got uh, uh, four people, let's give me the example again. Four people who say earn a family of four, which is say, a, let's say it's a traditional nuclear family of a, a husband, wife, and two kids. That family of four that let's say earns, we could have many ways that that family could earn a hundred thousand. Each parent could be working, earning fifty. One parent could be working other at home earning a hundred for the one who works, but if the total command of goods and services for a family of four is a hundred thousand, that's equivalent to what of one person? Fifty thousand. Okay. So that's right. So just uh, take that uh, 
four, which is the number of people, take the square root of it, which is two. Divide that into a hundred. Exactly. Okay. So that's so so the, the so instead of taking literally per capita income, which would be twenty five in the case of that family of a hundred, you're really saying each family member has a is like is like living on fifty, even that's though right. they don't each get fifty thousand of spending money. <coughs> that's correct. Okay. So that's now, keep going. Now I'll just say that uh, one of the nice things about that is that that uh, simple uh, calculation approximates the uh, uh, way that uh, poverty lines are set uh, traditionally in the United States. So uh, that elasticity, which is what we call that uh, power, is very close to the elasticity that you would get if you looked at the poverty line for one person family, a two person family, three and four in the United States. So analogously, it doesn't just ramp up multiples of the number of people. It takes into account the fact that Larger households can economize and and get a, a larger per capita effective per capita share. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. So the work we described before. Uh, so how does that? How does this household? Um, if you're using household units as your measure of analysis, how does <coughs> that? Um, how does that play out when you're looking at say the growth in in income from seventy nine to eighty nine? So there's two issues here. One is you got to decide what income is, and you're saying if you change from pre-tax to instead pre-tax post-transfer, you get one, you get a different answer. How does this household calculation we just went through? How does that? Why is that relevant? Well, uh, once you've done that uh, and you've looked at the, the simplest, as you said before, the, the simplest measure of how the typical American is doing is uh, how the median American is doing. But the issue is. Uh, how do you determine who the median American is? How do you line them up? And, yes, that's right. And uh, just sort of a, a, an interesting point is that if you ask about what's been happening to uh, the median household, uh, you're going to get a very different answer than if you ask what's been happening to the median person uh, in the United States. Using it household turns, income. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're, it turns out that um, – the median person uh, is has higher income than the median household does, which seems like a uh, Lake Wobegon statement that uh, all of our kids uh, are higher than average. But th- it's perfectly consistent to say that because the majority of people uh, live in households that are above the median. Why is that the case? It's because uh, uh, households with more income also have more people. So this is why these little, these seemingly um, footnotes really matter. Uh, it turns out uh, if you just look at median income uh, uh, last year, it's about, uh, median income is about $50,000, but uh, the median person uh, in those households uh, has income of about $60,000. So I'm confused by that. So let me, let's try to walk through that with maybe a stylized example. Because when you're saying the median person, are you saying using the calculation with the square root that you just talked about? Or are uh, you no, just not taking even doing about, that. You're just taking earn, all earners and lining them up. Is that correct? All persons. Right. So in yes. so explain to me again why in that situation maybe we could take an example of two three households. Um it might be too hard to do, but um, I, 
if I have three households where all six people are working, or maybe if I have three, I'm not sure how to correct. Okay, I, I think this, this is the way to think about it. Go ahead. Uh, take those three households, right? One household has uh, uh, twenty thousand in it. Uh, the next one has forty thousand in it, and the next one has sixty thousand in it. Median household so income is forty thousand. Yeah. So the median household is uh, household is forty thousand. But it turns out that um, uh, uh, the first household only has one person in it. The second household has two people in it. And the third person, a third household has three people in it. So the median's in the highest household. That's right. Well, but 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 that won't work because the median, the sixty thousand has three people in it, but they only are earning twenty. So they're going to be down uh, with the, the household. Is the, yeah, but the household, it's the 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 household income of the median person is sixty thousand dollars. Okay, I, I'm with you there. Now I understand. Great, correct. You're right. If I went to you and if you're in that large household, I said, what's your household's income? You'd say 60. Exactly. So so the, if I survey individuals and rank them, I'm going to get a 60. That's right. Uh, as the median where. OK, so I agree with you. So so richer families, larger families tend to have more income regardless of what the source of the causation is. There's a correlation there. Um, That's right. Some of That's it's right. because they have more people working, but some of it's just for other reasons. Um, and so but I think. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I, th- I think the only point is that. You have to really think through what it is that you're measuring, why it is that you're measuring it, because all these things that seem to sound the same turn out to lead to quite different measures. Now, it's not because the assumptions, uh, it's not because there's mathematical errors here. It's that all of these measures of uh, social success uh, can lead to different levels and trends in what's happening in the United States. And it's why, as I started the story out by talking about the 1970s, I, I talked about the 19, uh, 1970s and 1980s. I uh, am old enough to have lived through the 1980s. And in the 1990s, when people were saying that the rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer, and the middle class was shrinking, that just didn't seem right because I looked at the United States and I thought we were much better off in the, uh, over the 80s than uh, the way these numbers were coming up. And it's what got me first into recognizing how the little details can really matter in terms of uh, the perceptions of what's going on. Yeah, I've, and, I've, I have the same issue. I, and I, it doesn't pass the sniff test with me. Now, of course, it's dangerous to think that way. It could be you're just – you swim in the wrong circles and you're – very special circles, and you know, when I, when I look around, and <clears throat> I live in the Washington D.C. area, and the economy looks pretty healthy, I should—that's not a very good indicator of how the economy is doing because Washington's very distinctive. But when people tell me that we have made no progress on average since 1970, 75, 74, 79, I was alive then. I remember what cars looked like. I remember what stores looked like, and the average person has a much richer material life now than they did 40, 30, 40 years ago. And it's absurd. It seems absurd. Maybe I'm wrong. So it's why you have to look at the data. But as you point out, it's not simple to look at the data. You have to make all kinds of decisions about and assumptions and, and your biases and ideology, of course, color what your assumptions are. I think that's right. And so uh, what I find uh, – so, so there are two issues. One is are, are the things that you just talked about, and I think that 
that's why it's very important from a political perspective to uh, objectively look at these things. But I'll tell you the truth. The truth is, and this is just the way we academics are, and I admit it, the puzzle to me is how can you get such wildly, apparently wildly different uh, visions uh, with the same data? And uh, to, to bring us up to uh, the paper that we talked about today, um, it comes from uh, a quest on our part to figure out how two extraordinarily smart people, uh, Piketty and Sayez, uh, could get such wildly, di uh, wildly different perspectives on what's happening in the United States uh, uh, using their data than uh, I could using these traditional measures that I've been looking at for the last 30 years. So I was getting some results that were much different from uh, the vision you get looking at Piketty and Sayez. And I knew these guys were really smart. So either there was something wrong with the data that they were using versus the data that we were using, or they were using different assumptions in the way they were measuring this data than we were, or one of the other of us had made mathematical errors. And it took us four years to actually figure this out. But the answer is, it wasn't the data. And it wasn't that we were making mathematical errors. It was that we were fundamentally asking different questions, but using almost the same words to describe our findings. So tell, tell us what you, what you did. Uh, you, of course, now are going to be looking at a longer span of time, 79 to when? Uh, 19, uh, we actually, with them, go back all the way from 1967 to uh, 2007. Uh, and that paper is actually um, coming out in the review of economics and statistics this uh, this next issue. Uh, but it's also um, uh, that that paper talks explains why we're doing different things. And then this paper that just came out in National Tax Journal um, argues that uh, we think our way of thinking about it is better than their way of thinking about it. So let's let's do the National Tax Journal paper first, if you think that's appropriate. Because sure. you have a nice little table in there that shows dramatically how making slightly different assumptions that seem innocuous or relatively unimportant, like tax unit versus household unit, you get radically different answers for what's happened over the last, uh, in this case, 20 or 30 years. That's right. So let's take the, the, the simplest measure of, uh, economic, uh, of uh, economic well-being of the typical American – and let's look at um, what's happened to median income between 1979 and 2007. So this is pre-tax. This is, this is uh, yeah, so first of all, this is using the current population survey, which is not what Piketty and Sayers use. They use IRS data. And this is a very important point. Um, I started the conversation by saying that economists are limited by the data that they have available. Uh, our questions really can only be answered in terms of uh, the units that we're talking about beginning in 1967 in a consistent way because that's when the CPS first started. Right. Picking and say as we're asking questions about what's been happening to income back uh, through the, the entire 20th century. And they used as their unit analysis uh, internal revenue service data on tax units. So they looked at tax units. We looked at households. So what we 
did, and this is what's kind of cool, is we took their assumptions about sharing unit, that is the tax unit, which you can get in the CPS data. They can't get the household in the IRS data. We, but we, because we, because a tax unit is a subset of a household, we can uh, replicate their assumptions. So we used a tax unit, and that is uh, the units that people uh, uh, include in their in their tax uh, filing units. Uh, we look at pre-tax, pre-transfer income, which is called market income. That's the return to land, labor, and capital. And that's really all they have as their income measure because they only ha- they have tax data. That's right. They don't they have transfers. They don't have in-kind benefits, compensation that's non-monetary or even – and of course, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so they are – they're asking a perfectly valid question. They're asking what's been happening to the median uh, market income of tax units. That is – uh, when you add up the returns to land, labor, and capital, what's been happening in median income? They don't adjust for household size or tax, uh, tax unit size. And they, as you said, they don't include government transfers. They're just looking at the returns to land, labor, and capital. And, they, and, and when we use their measure in the CPS data from 79 to 2007, we get a pretty discouraging result. The median income of these tax units has only increased by 3.2% over the entire 30 years. Which is zero. That, that's zero. Close to zero. Yes. Not, that, that's not that annual. Be, that's not per year. That's over the total. That's flat. That's stagnation. Yep. That's, and that's what they call it. The middle class has stagnated over the last 30 years. And that statement is correct. But what does that statement mean? And how do you put it in the context of how a typical American has done over those last 33 years. Is it really true that uh, we haven't increased at all in, in, in our ability to consume things in the last 30 years? So the, now- and, or, we, that, or that if we have, it's all gone to the top 5% or 1% or 10th of 1%. So, exactly So the, right. pie, the pie is clearly bigger. The question is, there's, a, there's two issues here. One is one's absolute command over goods and services. And then you can discuss also one's relative command and where you are in the- distribution or groups command a certain segment of the population, the middle fifth, say, or whatever. But this is just saying that on, in absolute terms, if you just look at income and, and excuse me, income and capital income, Market income. Earn, earn, earnings plus dividends and capital gains, correct? Yes. Then it's flat between 1979 and 2007. There's no 3% total increase. That's corrected for inflation, right? Yes. And but so once you correct for inflation, no gains to the to the median household, median tax that's, unit. Excuse me. That's correct. Now I want to be careful here. The CPS does not collect capital gains, uh, so capital gains are not in here. Uh, and actually, in the original paper that Piketty and Sayers uh, did, uh, where all this stuff came from, uh, they also didn't use capital gains in their principal measures. Okay. So that's a problem with. with but for this. the but median, it's not that big a. It's not it that big for the, for the median. median. It's pretty yeah. small. Okay, so carry on. So, but then you made a different assumption, and you got a different result. Okay, so let's just let's and this is the fun part of the puzzle. Let's just take no longer take the tax unit as the unit of analysis, but now let's look at the household, and you go from a gain of three point two percent over that period to a gain of fifteen point two percent, and that happens because the number of 
tax units per household has been rising over that 30-year period. There's a lot more people living together and sharing everything except a marriage certificate. Fascinating. Okay. So now let's go to the next level. So, but that. So, but let's stop there for a sec. So, yeah. so that just changing the unit of analysis from tax unit to a household unit, taking account of the fact that there are people who are living together who are who are called separate for tax purposes, but actually can have some economies of scale. That changes the growth rate by a multiple of almost five. It's it's actually it's actually uh, different even than that. We haven't even brought in economies of scale yet. We're just saying in the sense of dividing. Oh, just the unit. That. Just just the it's just the yeah. unit. Oh, just sorry. simply going from a tax unit to a household unit, sharing unit, changes that because in these tax units, uh, you have people. Uh, there is something. Okay, so, so their assumptions about tax units uh, are. They care very much about what the top 1% or 5% of tax units are, but they also want to include not only the people who pay taxes, but the people who don't file taxes. So they have to make some assumptions about who's in these tax units. And their assumptions are that anyone over the age of 20 who is not uh, uh, living with, uh, uh, excuse me, anyone over the age of 20 who is not married. Uh, is an individual tax unit. Uh, so you get you they get a lot more uh, low individuals numbers. With numbers. low numbers than you would when you recognize that most of these people who are uh, above the uh, above the age of twenty but aren't married are connected in some way with other individuals in households. So, so you get fewer. They've got a bigger left-hand tail. They've got a lot more units total, which ha- – and, right. and since they're below the median typically, they're pulling the median down. That's correct. Now, I want to be clear on this. They can't do this. That's why they didn't – the advantage mean? of what we can do is we can actually get a median because we know what the distribution is below these top units. They don't know that. They make assumptions about that. Uh, so that's why they they – Picking and sales can't tell you what the median uh, tax units uh, pre-tax pre-transfer income is. They just don't have that that data. We do because we have the CPS and we can uh, put it into smaller tax units. And the important thing about the QJ, uh, the Restat paper that we've uh, done that says this is all valid is we can get virtually get their results using the CPS. That's so, what was really cool yeah, about so, that paper. So, yeah, just to make that clear to people who who maybe find that confusing. You're using a different data set than they're using, but you can implicitly – you can replicate their results because you have a lot of the data that they're effectively using. They have more of it. Yours is just a sample, but it doesn't matter because you can mimic what they've done by taking the same assumptions in your data. So that's a way to check that the sensitivity of the results to the assumptions. If you start with their assumptions, with your data, you get a similar result even though you're not using the exact same data set. That's exactly right. And here is the really important intellectual point here. Uh, No one has been able to do this before. So people have argued that uh, you can't actually use the CPS to look at uh, the tails of the distribution. Uh, And therefore, Piketty and Sayers, uh, even though their their data has problems, uh, those problems are less than the problems in the CPS. The 
thing that took us four years to do was to show people, no, that's not true. We can actually get uh, very close to the levels and trends that they get in their IRS data using the CPS data. That's what took a long time. Once that is established, once you grant me that the CPS can get approximately what uh, the IRS is getting, then you can write a National Tax Journal article that can actually show how sensitive the assumptions that they are forced to take because of the limits of their data matter if you go beyond what it is that they're asking. Okay, so and that's, go ahead. What, that's what this paper is, I think, interesting about and is so profound. And this table, this one table, as we go through it, is to me so shocking that you can get such dramatically different numbers for a simple concept like median income. So we've gone from tax units where there's an increase between 79 to 2007 of 3.2. Simply from going to the tax unit to the household unit, we get 15.2. So almost a five-fold okay. increase, but still 15.2 over that length of time. It's 28 years. It's, it's not great. It's a half, like a half a percentage point a year. It's fair. It's pretty good. It's not stagnant, but it's not great. That's right. Okay, so now when you go to household size-adjusted pre-tax post-transfer income, so now we are doing – we're going to the usual measure – uh, that I've been I've been using the Census Bureau's measure pre-tax post-transfer income, and the unit is the household, and we're adjusting by the number of people in the household to the 0.5. You go from 15.2 to 23.6. So now instead of 3.2 for a tax unit pre-tax pre-transfer, you now have uh, 23.6 for the household uh, sharing unit adjusted by the number of people in it. And we're including government transfers. Uh, so it's it's is it pre-tax post-transfer? Is that correct? Yes, that's right. It's not post-tax post-transfer. That's correct. We haven't looked at income taxes okay. and, and, and sales taxes yet. Okay. Okay. Then what we need to recognize is not only does the government transfer income from high-income people to low-income people through uh, government transfers like the Social Security uh, payroll, uh, Social Security um, uh, uh, benefits and disability benefits and uh, uh, TANF benefits and those sorts of things, but it also does it through a progressive income tax. So when we then use the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research's uh, tax simulator with the CPS data, we can uh, simulate the amount of uh, income taxes, state uh, uh, taxes, and uh, payroll taxes that people pay. Because you, you know a lot of their characteristics, so you're going to pretend – you're going to try to approximate <laughs> what their – Income tax form would be filled out to yield if if you had if you could see it. You can't see That's it, but right. you know a lot about them. You know how many kids they have. You know uh, what kind of income you might. You don't know everything about them. It's just because you don't might not know their charitable deductions, or all their medical deductions. You have, et cetera. But you, you know, do you know the value of their house? Do you have their mortgage? You might have that, right? Uh, we don't. Uh, we don't know about mortgage. Uh, Okay. So, uh, so it's a crude they, they, estimate. On average, we, it's, we, we yeah. do. But. It's a crude estimate. Yes, that's right. And what do you, so what do you find then? So then we go from 23.6%, which is uh, uh, the median income without taxes, to 29.3% growth. Now, you might say, how can you get median income uh, uh, being uh, growing faster when you're uh, subtracting things out? And the answer is that we've actually uh, been paying 
at the meeting anyway, uh, we've been paying a smaller share of our uh, income into taxes, and that's why uh, you get the growth is 29.3 rather than 23.6. Okay. And then there's one last change. Yes, and then the last change is uh, to talk about uh, this growing uh, share of uh, earnings that comes in, uh, in non-wage compensation and uh, also the fact that Medicare and Medicaid have been growing also. So we, as an example of how important it is to think about uh, uh, in-kind transfers as well as in-cash transfers and to think about the value of health insurance for uh, employees as, as well as their wages, we um, are able to estimate the uh, uh, employer share of uh, employer-provided health insurance to workers and the, uh, uh, and the uh, insurance value of Medicare and Medicaid to uh, lower-income people who are getting those benefits. And when you do that, it goes from 29.3% to 36.7%. So we're really talking about a difference from 3.2 in the way that picking sales are thinking about things in tax units to 36.7 if we simply include the value of um, uh, uh, health insurance as well as do the other things that we've talked about. That's a tenfold increase. So uh, there's two, I think, two obvious thoughts here. One is, boy, it sure makes a difference about what you assume. And as you point out, you can. Uh, there, there are different justifications for what you might look at, but if you're looking at economic well-being, it's hard to argue that that first measure is the right measure. You'd think it would – you'd want to include things like transfers and health insurance, and you've left out a bunch of stuff, by the way. There's, a, there's at least two things you've left out. One is there's all kinds of other non-monetary compensation that isn't in the CPS uh, that I suspect has been growing. Silly, small things, but not zero. Dental benefits, vacation. Um, I'm not sure it gets bonuses. Uh, does it get regular, set, non-regular bonuses in the March uh, CPS? Uh, in in principle, it does, but uh, uh, how well that does, I don't. I don't know. But I they've become one, more important over the last thirty years in compensation. Yeah. So you have all the. What, the point is, is it I, I, one. As you said, it's a beautiful example of how assumptions matter and, and data analysis. Um, you know, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, it's kind of amazing that <clears throat> that range from 3.2 to 36 point uh, something. But the other, of course, I think what some people would be asking, and I always find this this is a question I hear a lot from uh, here sometimes from students. So which one's right? Because <laughs> because they can't well, both be right. One's really big and one's really small. So which one's right? Because I want to write down the exam. When the exam comes and says, how's the median income person doing? Right? You got to put in an answer. And there's A, really well, B, pretty well, C, not so well, D, lousy. What's the right answer, Professor Burkhauser? Well, I think the right <laughs> answer depends on what the right question is. Yeah. Uh, so if you're asking uh, what's been happening to um, market income, I think there's no question that um, wage rates have become more unequal. But once you adjust for um, uh, health insurance and other things, it's it's less unequal, uh, and that uh, and that in terms of real compensation, it's clearly rising. 
So I, I think that even there, um, uh, returns to uh, work have been rising. Uh, the, the notion that we as a society are not doing as well as we were uh, 30 years ago, I think uh, by virtually any measure, uh, uh, reasonable measure, uh, uh, is just, uh, it's just false. Uh, and, and once you, and, and I think that's the main statement. The, the, the issue of distribution is a little harder. It's a little, little harder to argue. Uh, we have become uh, somewhat uh, more unequal. But even there, uh, what we find is in the CPS data uh, is uh, between 1992 and 1993, there was a change in the uh, Ability of the census to capture uh, uh, exotic incomes uh, of the top one percent uh, uh, of the income distribution. So, if people look at the CPS data and don't recognize that in 1993 we suddenly were able to better capture income, they will uh, get the false notion that income inequality increased between 1992 and 1993. It didn't. It just was our ability to capture that income. And we had actually adjust for that here. Uh, but what it says is that uh, you, when, you get, when you get people telling you things that just don't seem to be consistent with reality, you really do need to look very carefully at the assumptions that they're they're making. So, what kind of reaction have you gotten from this paper? These two papers. Oh, by the way, we haven't talked about the reviewing economics and statistics paper. What? What? Well, give me a punchline on that one. Sure. Well, the punchline on that one is that uh, when we sent that paper to the AER, uh, uh, we we sent a paper to the AER that's, that made the following statement. That income in the income inequality in the United States rose substantially between uh, 1967 and 1992, but hasn't increased very much since 1993. And we did that using the measure I just talked about: household size adjusted pre-tax post-transfer income. And uh, we got back uh, a referee report from the AER that said uh, this clearly can't be true because Piketty and Sayers have found that income inequality has risen dramatically in the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, so we had, uh, I was, we were just minding our own business using the traditional measures and hadn't really, to tell you the truth, paid a lot of attention to picketing and says in that literature. So in order for us to publish clearly what we thought were traditional ways of measuring things, we had to, uh, demonstrate to, uh, referees that in fact you could get those two, Results. So that's when we looked much more carefully at what Piketty and Sayers did. We then uh, we took uh, and, and what we had. The other thing that we had, which is really cool, is that uh, the CPS public use data uh, limits uh, what you can know about uh, top income people because it top codes each of the twenty three types of income that people get. And um, by top coding, I mean that. Uh, they want to protect the uh, confidentiality of uh, people so that if you have a lot of income and a particular source of income, they, um, they, they truncate will not it. give you – They truncate it. They truncate they it, truncate right? It. They just call exactly it a right. million even though it might be 87 million or whatever is the truncation. That's right. So uh, good economists recognizing that stopped using the CPS 
to measure uh, inequality because the top parts of the distribution were uh, non-systematically lopped off. Yep. And they started using 90-10 ratios and those sorts of things, looking at the person's the 90th percentile and the 10th percentile. So we actually gained access, and this is kind of a cool story in itself, we actually gained access to the internal CPS data uh, and uh, were able to uh, get around these top codes uh, and to see uh, much more clearly what was going on. At least uh, the top codes in the internal day were much more in the range of uh, the top 99.2 or 3 uh, rather than uh, uh, lower down, which is what the other ones were doing. And we observed one important thing. In 1995-1996, uh, in, in, in it appears in the, in the uh, public use data that income inequality gigantically increases. Well, it turns out that the only reason it gigantically increased was instead of using top codes starting in 1996 in the public use data, they began using uh, cell means of the top parts of the distribution. That is, rather than just giving you, rather than lopping things off in a million dollars and giving everybody a million dollars as as the as the value, they looked at all the values above a million dollars, found out what the mean of those values was, and gave you that, say two and a half million dollars. So if people uh, naively used uh, the data, the public use data, suddenly they saw all these 2.5 millionaires rather than the 1. millionaires that they, uh, yeah, 1.0 millionaires they had the previous year. So all these kinds of things. And it makes, uh, it, it, it always makes the New York Times. And I always look at those data and I want to say, it, they clearly ch they change the definition or it's a coding error. The, thing, the world doesn't go. change like that in a year, but but that never stops them. Uh, and I maybe I'm being unfair to the New York Times, but I guarantee, I'm sh very confident somebody wrote an embarrassing article, assuming those numbers were were meaningful. <laughs> uh, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, you'll still see those. You'll still see those uh, pictures in the New York Times and even the Wall Street Journal. Surprisingly enough. Uh, so anyway, we got around all that. We got the internal data, and that's when we found this kind of uh, uh, important point that while income inequality has increased slightly since 1993, uh, it hasn't increased by all that much. We couldn't get that published because people said that was inconsistent with Picketing and Sayers. Then that led us to see that Picketing and Sayers were really measuring market income, not the total income. They were looking at tax units rather than households. They weren't looking at uh, government transfers. And uh, we were able then to ask the question, what's been happening to the uh, trends in the top 1% of uh, uh, Tax units, how much uh, of total tax uh, market income do they hold? What about the 5%? What about the 10%? And we were able to show that for the 90 to 95th percentile, when we use the CPS data, but their definitions, we got their trends dead on for the 90th to 95th percentile. For the 95th to 99th percentile, we got their trends dead on. And it was only in the top 1% that we had some differences at the two biggest differences, and this is kind of cool, is that in 92-93, when, uh, when I told you that they, they, they changed uh, the ability of the census to get these exotic numbers, there's a big jump in, in our data that's clearly an error. In a, not an error. It's a change in Definition. methodology yeah. in the CPS. We get a big uptick where they're actually getting a downtick. So their numbers are better there, and that's clearly wrong, and that said that we should lift all of our previous years up so that there's no break. But they also have a tick. Uh, uh, the Reagan administration uh, uh, worked with the, the Democrats in Congress in the 1980s 
to adjust the top taxes, uh, the top personal income taxes. And in uh, the 1986 uh, reforms, uh, for the first time, made the uh, highest personal income tax rate lower than the corporate rate. And when that happened, not surprisingly, there was a dramatic increase in the yeah. amount of market income reported on people's uh, taxes. So they used to in take their it data, as, they used to take it as as distribute, distributed profits and partnerships and other businesses, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly right. So in their data, they have this big uptick in in, in the share held by the top one percent. Uh, that in our data, there's no change. Yeah. So I would argue that there that is the exact same problem when you adjust for those two sorts of things. Then the trends are actually pretty close. Okay, so then you're able to then look at a different trend when you include the – I assume you're then going to do something similar to what you did in the National Tax Journal piece. Well, actually, we didn't even do that. All we did, all we did in that was to show that we could get their results. Oh, okay. But that's important because it says that uh, it's important for them, it's important for us. We both verified that if you're asking the question that they're asking – they are correct, and we can verify it. And if we're asking the question we're asking, we're correct, and it's not inconsistent with what they're doing. But it goes back to this question. The ultimate question is, what's the question? To me, here's how Piketty and Sayers can really be misused. There's a, 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 a book out that uses uh, the Piketty and Sayers numbers, uh, and it's by a political scientist, and he's arguing that uh, look, uh, we're back to the gilded era in the yeah, United States. I've seen that uh, book. That the, the, the share of the share of income held by the top one percent is as great today as it was in the 1920s. Well, that is true of market income, but let's think about the 1920s and think about today. In the 1920s, there was no social security system. If you weren't earning market income, you were in bad shape. Uh, you know, we did have, we did have, we do now have a social security system, and all the people over the age of sixty-five who have no market income are not starving in the streets. But that market income, that that transfer income, is not included in that comparison. So, to make comparisons of what's been going on with market income and imply something about the economic well-being of people in the United States uh, is uh, to completely misuse. Uh, Piketty and Sayers is numbers. I just want to mention to to listeners that Piketty and Sayers' work, we'll put links up to it, and they make their data available online. If you're interested in playing with it, you can see it. They're very uh, transparent about their their data. You can you can uh, create your own spreadsheet or cut the numbers a little differently than they've done it. Uh, but as you point out, they're asking a different question or a, a better – but I think the real issue is, is that people – they don't care what question they're asking. They're going to take their answer and they're going to use it to answer their own question, which is how are people doing? How's the country doing? I think the to give them the benefit of the doubt, and as as my listeners know, I'm very um, skeptical about this uh, these theories that the average person is doing poorly. So I'm very amenable to your kind of improvement, uh, or what I would call an improvement. But let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute. It's if you look at at um, say men's income uh, or men's wages, it, it is remarkably flat. Now you have to be careful because I'm, I'm looking. I'm now I'm talking. I'm talking about individual workers now. 
Yes. Uh, one of the challenge, one of the mistakes that people make, and it's a very subtle point, is that if you're uh, if you're taking an increasing share of your income in the form of healthcare and healthcare, excuse me, in the form of healthcare insurance from your employer, the CPI that you're using then to deflate your market earnings is misleading because that CPI has been going up somewhat dramatically, partly because healthcare costs are going up. But if you have healthcare insurance, you're insulated from that somewhat. You're just taking that you're taking it your income in that form of the insurance, but you can't then use the entire CPI to deflate uh, your market income. It, it's not the correct measure because you don't have to use that market income to buy health insurance to buy health care. So that's a subtle point. It's I don't know if people are, are listening can can grasp it, but maybe I, I spoke too quickly there. But the the point is is that on the surface, the stagnation of of market income is not. It's not encouraging. It's not it's not that comforting to be told, oh, well, don't worry. You're getting it in the form of health care insurance. Yeah, but what I have left over isn't changing much. Well, part of what you have left over is actually a little bigger than it appears because of the way the CPI is calculated and, and this fact that you're getting this in-kind transfer. Um, but it's still – it's it, it, it's not the cheeriest – it's not the cheeriest conclusion to say, well, the middle class is doing better because if you include transfers – it turns out it's pretty good. That that is slightly alarming. Well, uh, I, I I think that um, it just. It, I think the more important point is that uh, what is driving these kinds of uh, changes and. What can you do about it? I, I think that's that's where all of this goes to. These are social success indicators that that hopefully give us some idea of what's happening. So I think that what's happening is uh, that uh, the returns uh, in the marketplace are now more unequal. Uh, that there is a great premium on uh, education and training. That uh, and, and and you want to ask yourself why is that happening? The, the sort of simple-minded answer to that, which some people would argue is it's because the greedy top 1% are uh, 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 getting all this in profits and uh, uh, exploiting the working man. Uh, I just think it's a, it's a much more complex issue than that and uh, that we need to get beyond that and think about uh, what's actually happening here. And what I think most uh, economists are arguing is that we're having technological change, which is uh, 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 skill biased, and it's and if you are if you have skills, uh, you actually are doing pretty well. Uh, the, the return on on education has been rising, even though the number of people going to school uh, and, and getting higher educations has been rising. Uh, but if you're if you're not if you don't have skills today, you're really competing with the unskilled labor of around the world, and. What are we going to do about that? Well, again, it depends on how you think markets work. I think markets work – markets are like mirrors. They show you, in fact, the way the real world is working. And you can either deny that or you can adjust uh, your practices so that you are able to do better in that world. So what it says is that uh, if we're going to be in a world of competition, a world in which we allow the free movement of goods across borders and, and uh, we have international trade, that means that uh, we 
have to be skillful. And if we're workers, we have to invest in, in uh, education and have to recognize that if we don't do that, uh, our returns are not going to be that great. So my view is uh, for people who don't have those skills, have low incomes, who are poor, I'm absolutely in favor of uh, transferring income to those folks. But I want to do it in, in a way that uh, doesn't uh, uh, kill the uh, uh, golden goose uh, that uh, allows us to be productive. And that is by allowing people to get a fair return on their investments. So this class warfare discussion that seems to come from this rather arcane discussion that we're having, I think is, is very serious. And what I'm suggesting is that the, the numbers that, we're, that I'm showing is that, uh, yes, things uh, are more unequal in the marketplace, but they've been offset substantially by 50 or 60 years of government programs that have worried about redistribution, but worried about it with the recognition that you, uh, you can't do simple things like simply raise the marginal tax rates on uh, the top 1% uh, and not expect that to have some impact on uh, productivity and growth. Well, I guess, I guess two thoughts and let you react to them. One is, you know, if you do raise the taxes on the top 1%, uh, you're going to change the pre-tax income of the top 1%, not just the post-tax income. So there's sort of a pres- assumption, I think, of, of all parties often that, oh, well, we'll just take this money and give it to these folks and then pre-tax income will be more equal. Well, it won't be because you're playing with the returns in the labor market and supply and demand are going to push the pre-tax compensation of those folks up partially to compensate for their lost income in the form of taxes. So in fact, what you're going to do is often make what appears to be the gap between rich and poor actually bigger. If if you tax the top 1% or the top 25% or whatever it is, you're actually going to raise their pre-tax income uh, through economic forces, market forces, and it's going to look like you've made it worse. You, your post-tax is going to be closer together, but your pre-tax is going to be bigger. The second thought I have is that that 50 and 60 years you're talking about of transfer income, and I thought you were going to allude to this earlier, that affects your market income. Obviously, our, our ability and generosity through the political system of, of making it easier for people to, to uh, get by with less work makes it easier for people to work less. And so you can't look at them independently. They're you can debate how big the, those effects are, the disincentives to work and from transfer programs and, and impl- implicit high marginal tax rates of those programs. But you can't just look at the market system's distribution of wages based on skill independently of that transfer system because it affects it. Well, of course, that's exactly right. And that's uh, uh, that comes to the major problem of, of all uh, – uh, evaluators of policy, what's the counterfactual? That yeah. is, what would things really have looked like if you hadn't uh, done the policy? And that goes back to this 1929 comparison that I was talking about. Uh, in 1929, uh, people over the age of 65 had far more market income than they do today. That's not because they can't work. It's because they don't have to work because we have uh, these transfer systems that have allowed people to not work after the age of 62. And, so and, naturally, if they, and if they do work, they lose some of those benefits, so they're discouraged from working. It's not just that they're comfortable. That's right. That's right. So, And actually, a, a really a wonderful example of that is that 
the one group whose market income has dramatically increased since 1996 are single mothers. Well, why has their market yeah. income increased so much? It's yeah. increased so much because we went from an AFTC program, which completely discouraged work, to uh, the new TANF program, which says that uh, if you're a single mom, we will uh, allow you to get uh, uh, benefits, but only for five years. But if you uh, work, we will, even if it's in a low-wage uh, 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 low, uh, low uh, job, we'll provide you with earned income tax credits, which will uh, supplement and subsidize work rather than uh, leisure. So, so in that sense, uh, uh, if, you, if all you want to do is increase market income, I suppose you could stop providing all transfers and then we'd have a lot more market income. But do we really want to do that? It's a question for another time. Uh, my guest today has been Richard Burkhauser. Rich, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Happy to do it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.